Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents ACA Media. I'm Christine Becker. And I'm Michael Kackman. And we are recording this on a very exciting day. This is the deadline Super for... Exciting. Yeah, the deadline for proposals to be submitted to CP at ND. Yeah, Consoling Passions, going to be hosted at Notre Dame in June of this year. Yes, very exciting. I would try to use this as a provocation, you know, and tell people, come on, you know, get, those, get, those, get those submissions in, but... I would have to travel forward in time and then back in time right. in order to get them in in time. So I don't think that's going to happen. Well, just in case that technology gets developed in the next few weeks. Get those proposals finished and submit them now. Right, yeah. Last week. And yeah, so even if you don't get a chance to propose a paper, you can still come by the conference. We're super excited about what we've got set up. We've got a keynote with Aniko Imre. Yeah, and a plenary roundtable with some terrific uh, younger scholars that are doing some great work. Yeah, so we look forward to uh, going through all the fantastic proposals we've got and putting together a really exciting conference. And we'll nag you about that. In the future. Yeah, we've got plenty of months till that. Good stuff coming up today, though. We do have some good stuff. Uh, first of all, I worked on a report about Film Matters, the undergraduate film journal. I actually recorded these interviews back when I did the segment from the last episode, but the issues they raised were so fascinating and different from the grad student-run journals that I wanted to do a, a piece just on Film Matters. So that's what you've got here. Yeah, that's good. Why don't we just go ahead and give that a listen? Okay, great. The idea for Film Matters was generated by Liza Palmer, who is a faculty member in the Department of Film Studies at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. About a decade ago, she was working as an editor for the journal Film International and came up with the idea of an essay contest for undergraduate film writing. The submissions were so impressive that she started looking around for journals to recommend for these students to submit to, and she found none. Simultaneously, this is around 2008, Intellect, the academic press, was setting up an office in the same building as the film department at UNC Wilmington, and they expressed interest in collaborating with the department. So this undergraduate film journal was a natural coming together of interests. But Liza was not just thinking of a journal containing undergraduate work. She had the idea that it should be run by undergrads. They would vet submissions, they would do peer review, and they would design the issues. This is a huge undertaking, of course, not something that most undergrads could just pick up and do without training. So Liza and her UNC Wilmington colleague and spouse, Tim Palmer, came up with the idea to actually make this a class, a seminar that students take, through the course of which they put together the journal and learn about the process of publication. I talked to Tim Palmer about the genesis of the journal and the class at this early point. So as all these things were coming together, critical mass, intellect, really, like we, we pitched this idea. Why, why not have a publication, online articles, in print, peer-reviewed? Why not open this thing up and have uh, a seminar that we teach here be the guest, be, um, I'm sorry, be the editorial board and produce this unique publication? We believe it to be the first of its kind in the world in which the undergraduates do everything. So all these things coming together, we float the idea of, well, let's have a seminar where we uh, invite majors from our film studies department here at the UNC Wilmington. They become the editorial board. They liaise with, interact with intellect, who are extremely ambitious. They've been growing and really exploring all kinds of forms of publishing in film, media, all sorts of other interesting arts and humanities areas too. So professionals from intellect visit the class. 
the students learn about what publishing is. We also talk to them and teach them about what is peer review? Why do we peer review? It's in part demystifying the academic process, but it's also just we live in a world in which ideas jostle and collide and interact and find favour or not uh, all around us every day. And getting students to, first of all, understand historically, conceptually, professionally what peer reviewing is, what it means, and then all the better doing it themselves can be this wonderfully empowering process. The deep dive into peer review really struck me as important because it's not something that a lot of undergrads get exposed to. Most professors put comments on their papers, a grade, hand it back, and that's it. They might get a chance to revise, but not with the intensive and shared process that is peer review. And Tim explained that he reveled in teaching students the larger logic and value behind peer review. When I, when I teach the class myself and when I'm essentially chairing the editorial board, I will do things like, um, what would be an example of this? I'll do a module, for example, say on, well, how have crucial ideas in film studies been peer-reviewed? So one example of this would be, one of my favorites, is Francois Truffaut and André Bazin, right? Cahiers du Cinéma, 1950s, this, this wonderful story. You know, one of, it's, it really, I think, even today, one of the most influential pieces of film criticism ever in the history of cinema, of this idea of this young upstart, this, uh, this the young Turk, so-called, writing this extraordinary piece of uh, literally a, a hand grenade in the form of film criticism and having these various back and forth with his, <laughs> shall we say, rather skeptical uh, mentor, quasi-parent, and first peer reviewer, which is, which is Andre Bazin, right? The great Andre Bazin. Softening, tempering, qualifying, inserting himself into some of Truffaut's more, shall we say, incendiary <laughs> passages. Not that he ended up softening the blows too much. But this is an example, right? Editor, editorial board, journal, and then writer, figure, thinker. Here's something no one spotted. I have a really passionate response to it. What happens then, right? These wheels turn and ideas meet other ideas. And I, I find this to be interesting, right? We can always just think that articles and books that have come into the record and had influence, they're just like slabs of marble, right? They just descended from on high. And well, no, it's, it's peer review and it's, it's, it's a conversational dynamic. Tim also explained that he appreciates being able to demystify the publishing process for students, offering them a window to a world that is closed for most of them. I'm an academic, right? It's, <laughs> I, I, I love publication. I, I enjoy all that stuff. But this was new ground for me teaching the class and for Liza teaching the class, as she did um, many times in the early stages in the first few years, 08, 09, 10, and so forth. But we just found that the students were fascinated by this. One of, one of the people in the film studies department just got an article accepted for review. Now they know what that means, right? Or finally, that book manuscript is going to actually become a book in the library or something that I can download as a PDF, right? So now I know what's happened for that to come to pass. I always think of film studies and media studies in general and just humanities and, and you know, most forms of intellectual inquiry as a conversation. And we can teach this in our classes and say, you know, you've got to cite some sources now, right? It's time to cite some material, earn your, earn your salt as a, as a respondent. But entering into that process at an editorial level, right, the, the nuts and bolts of putting an issue together, the students really just, it's like a whole new avenue for them. And I guess the proof is in the pudding to a certain extent is now our, now our majors are starting to find careers in publishing. 
And as always, this is the pressure put upon us, right? Justify your existence. Well, here's another one is publishing and film and media publishing is actually a, in certain sectors quite a buoyant industry, I find. So there's that side too, I guess. I was curious to hear what the students themselves thought about this experience. So I spoke with two of them. They've taken the class. They've put together issues of Film Matters. First, Jen Pintow told me how surprised and pleased she was by the wide range of knowledge she obtained from the course. And interestingly, when I started the class, I thought that that was all that it was going to be. Like, I thought that it was just going to be aspects of being on the editorial board. But there was actually a lot of content that we learned before sort of engaging in that role and afterwards, um, which turned out to be my favorite aspect of the class. I mean, I came into the class knowing very little. I mean, very lofty ideas of what it means to be in the publication industry, but not about the specifics. So we learned, you know, what that meant specifically for Film Matters, but also more broadly, the elements at play in publishing any document for any publication. Also, the specific aspects affecting plagiarism. You know, in college, we're always told just don't do it. But we, we never really learn what plagiarism entails, what's really at stake in committing plagiarism, and how can it be avoided. Um, and so we spent a few classes going over and engaging with what that actually meant, which is, again, another thing that goes beyond just publishing. And then also issues of copyright and fair use, the benefits and drawbacks of scholarly work being protected, what that means for both us as an editorial board and also as writers ourselves. Um, so we got to approach it from both sides, what that means. That both sides issue also came up in the conversation I had with a second student, Kaylin Walpole, who said being a peer reviewer on Film Matters has honed her own skills. Well, it's definitely made me a better writer and a better um, better editor, better self-editor, for sure. You know, just, again, spending the time working with Liza and Dr. Palmer, it's made me more aware of, you know, like my own tendencies as a writer and also like what to look for. Um, in writing of others, you know, it's really prepared me for a job like, you know, seeking the you know, a job in the publishing industry. Jen Pinto also stressed that the class offered even more value than just job skills. So even if you have very little interest in writing or publication, the class teaches you how to both give and receive criticism in the form of peer review. And I think that's crucial. It's arguably the most universal aspect of the professional world. I mean, not just film, not anything in particular, just being able to give and take criticism. And I think that everyone finds themselves in those positions, often on a daily basis. And this class teaches you exactly how to perform those roles effectively. I can honestly say that of all the classes that I've taken as an undergraduate, this one has been the most practically beneficial. I feel like I'm, I'm a senior now, and I'm to say this is interesting. I don't ever really speak with such high praise of any one class, but I really feel like I gained a whole new tool set of things that I'd never really engaged with in any other class. Kaylin Walpole spoke with similar appreciation, and it was striking to me how much the Film Matters experience was perfectly geared toward her career aspirations, which are to work in publishing but stay connected to the world of film. I took the first course my junior year, and it was something that I saw when I was registering and I was like, oh, you know, that sounds interesting. I just saw the word magazine and I was like, oh, great, you know, because, you know, I'm into publishing. And, you know, most people come to at least to the film program at my university for the production aspect. You know, most of them want to break into that side. So um, it was a really unique uh, experience for me to, you know, as again, someone who's like a double major and is looking for um, something more, you know, with a literary tie in to film to be able to have that crossover you know, I can't really think of a comparable experience, um, you know, at other universities. 
Tim and Liza are actually trying to foster this at other universities by inviting guest editorial involvement. They allow professors at other schools to edit an issue with their undergrads or just contribute select content. Tim explains. Another of Liza's uh, wonderful ideas was essentially share the wealth. We've got this growing, fledgling, becoming established, unique venture. What might other academics do with this? What about other academics in different countries? What about other academics who've got a very different student body from ours? Um, Our student body is this, again, synthesis of production and critical studies and film history that we specialize in mainly here. Well, what happens if we put it in a, a different environment? And we started having conversations with people, say, at uh, film studies conferences, places like SCMS, where we would, people had contacted us and expressed an interest. And this led to some conversations. My student just published with you. Tell me more. What what is Film Matters? I I came across it, encouraged my student to send something your way. And sometimes it would turn into, well, would you be interested in doing, say, guest editing can take different forms. Would you be interested in doing, say, a dossier on such and such a thing? Maybe you're writing a book on it, teaching a senior undergraduate seminar on that thing, whatever it might happen to be, a national cinema or a concept or something, you know, film and media crossover, something like that. Maybe you would like to have your students produce a dossier, shorter pieces. We do featurettes. Maybe I'd just like to have my students create a dossier of themed reviews or write about the latest, say, grouped releases from Criterion DVDs on Italian cinema, for example. And sometimes academics think, well, maybe I'd like to take control of an entire issue. So even that, we felt like the guest editing tactic, first of all, finding like-minded academics of whom they're, they're, it turns out there are, there are a great many, I'm happy to report, who maybe they're at institutions where there's only undergraduates. They're not teaching masters or PhDs. Why shouldn't they have a stake in shaping the conversation and mentoring into print? I spoke with one professor who took on a whole issue of Film Matters with his group of students. Greg Chan is in the English department at Kwantlen Polytechnic University in Surrey, British Columbia. I asked him why he wanted to get his students involved in this. Well, once I reached out to Liza and I took a look at some of their back issues and just the fact that it's, it's exclusively for undergraduate film studies research was so unique. And then I started looking at some of the articles and I was just, I was, to be honest, I was blown away by the level of uh, research uh, at the undergraduate level. And I thought, hey, my students are, <laughs> are submitting work that's, that's on par with this. And I would like them to uh, have the writing have life beyond the classroom. Greg's students put together an issue on film adaptation that will be out this spring, and he reported similar payoffs, as we heard earlier, in terms of his students learning about publishing process components like peer review. I think initially, I did a bit of coaching with them because I think they were a bit apprehensive at first. Uh, They felt more comfortable being in the double-blind process. They didn't really want to uh, be the reviewer to say, this section is not working, or I do not understand the thesis, or there's not enough research support here. But as we moved through the, uh, the process, they became more confident with peer reviewing in, in sort of a real-world situation. Uh, not that university isn't, but just outside of the classroom, of course. Greg also told me how much he appreciated that in the issues, the student authors get a short bio in a sidebar to the essays, but so do the teachers they credit as their mentors who helped inspire and guide their work, thereby exposing readers to greater knowledge about where this work comes from. He explains. 
And what I love about what Liza and Tim have done with Film Matters is that they highlight the, uh, the mentor, uh, the instructor mentor, and also the university that the students and the instructor come from. So they're not just looking at the paper in a vacuum, they're looking at the, the author and the instructor and the entire university that helps cultivate this uh, piece of research. And it, it really helps with the community building too, to have those sidebars. I found this, there were some names and uh, of uh, instructors at other universities that I've come across before. I have seen their names before, uh, but I've never had that sort of exposure to their background, you know, uh, them mentoring their students, and this is the type of work that they do. So it was a really different entry point to see those sorts of profiles. In this way, the Film Matters community keeps growing, and this is by design. Tim expressed to me how he feels like an enemy of academia is getting stale, so he likes to keep experimenting with film matters, and he says the youthful passion of undergrads helps spur that on. And it's just that that's the dynamo, I think, right? Young minds who aren't, <laughs> who aren't uh, excessively cautious. It's like Truffaut Bazin, right? Why does Truffaut publish this piece? Because <laughs> he doesn't care, because he's willing to try something new and go out on a limb, and Papa Bazin there cautioning him back from the, from the abyss. The tension between those two created something remarkable, didn't it? Right? And influential. And, and, and hopefully stuff like that can, can come out of the Film Matters project too, we hope. Student Jen Pintow described a similar dynamic at work in her Film Matters experience. Honestly, I think one of the greatest aspects of having Film Matters on, on our campus is the amount of energy it brings with it. You flip through textbooks and scholarly publications on film and media, and the content's all there. It's well-researched and informative, but so often it fails to capture the allure and the energy that initially inspired them to write about it. And I think that that's what instantly sets Film Matters apart. You have a community of 20-year-old students going to screenings, pitching their own arguments, making discoveries. And so the process of publishing with Film Matters is so alive and so vibrant. Everyone cares so much about what they're saying. And that translates to a classroom full of respect and attentiveness and engagement. It's honestly unlike anything I've ever experienced in any of my other classes. If you think you and your undergrads would like to get a taste of this experience, Tim and Liza Palmer encourage you to reach out to them. We are always open to collaborators. We retain and really enjoy reaching out to guest editors. And as I said, to be a guest editor can mean all sorts of different things and varying levels of commitment. If this project, as I, uh, as I, as I hope you've enjoyed hearing about it, is interesting to you, listeners to this broadcast, uh, we would like to hear from you. Please go look at our, our website, Film Matters Magazine, um, and contact one of us, either myself or, or Liza. We're based at the UNC Wilmington, and we are very open when it comes to different kinds of publishing and different kinds of stake in a particular issue or a subject that might find its way into part of an issue. Uh, look us up. We'd like to hear from you. Good stuff. Thanks for doing that interview. Sure, yeah. It was really fascinating to talk to, to Tim and everyone else about the, um, and especially the students, talking to them about how much they uh, found this experience gratifying. It was really fun. I'm a big fan of these kinds of uh, experimental publishing systems where you kind of take take some elements of conventional academic publishing and mix it up a little bit. When I was an undergrad at Emerson College in Boston, I was the I was one of a series of editors of Latent Image, their film studies journal. Mm -hmm. And it actually it actually was a, a peer-reviewed 
journal, although the the model wasn't as fully elaborated as what they're doing with Film Matters. We had a group of, a kind of informal group of faculty, um, mostly from regional universities, people like Tom Doherty at Brandeis and stuff like that, folks like that. Um, and we would just publish uh, student work. And it was it was a great experience, but what Film Matters is doing is has kind of taken that to such a, a terrific level where they're actually getting the students involved in that review process and then and then using this kind of mentoring model is really it's great. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, and we'll have links to everything on our website, aka-media.org, links to the journal, links to contact information for Tim and Liza if you want to get involved. Uh, so look for that on our website. I also wanted to put in a plug. You mentioned how exciting these ventures can be, and I'm a fan of a TV journal, online journal, put together by students at uh, Columbia College Chicago called Water Cooler Journal. Um, so we'll link to that on our website as well. Yeah, good stuff. All right, well, next up, we've got a legend, an interview with a legend. This this is part of the ongoing series called Field Notes, SCMS Field Notes, where a group led by Heidi Wasson are organizing interviews with legends in media studies and, and talking about their background. I love these. These are really fun this to is, listen this to. This is one of my favorites. Yeah, and so we are giving you a shortened version of this. You can find the full version on our website. Um, this particular Field Notes interview, then, is with Tom Gunning, and it was conducted by Scott Curtis of Northwestern University, and this was the day after Gunning received the 2015 Distinguished Career Achievement Award at SCMS in Montreal. So it includes some particularly interesting history regarding the origin of the term cinema of attractions, uh, as well as some great recollections of NYU grad students fighting over analytical projectors. So let's give that a listen. All right, time for some audio of attractions. Yes. Nice. Well done. I was interested in movies as soon as I got to New York, was seeing a lot of them, but in a somewhat unsystematic way. I mean, I mainly knew about art films, you know, because that was the current thing, Bergman, Fellini, uh, things like that, you know, even things, Japanese film, Kurosawa, Mizuguchi. Uh, but I had just heard, because I would read The Village Voice, uh, about I think it was partly the Kurosawa loved John Ford, and I remembered as a little kid because I loved westerns that I had liked uh, she wore a yellow ribbon, and I watched it again and went, oh, there's something going on here. So I began to have a little sense that there was also this American cinema, but that was um, what kind of catalyzed by like my sophomore year at NYU uh, by a, a, a girl. You know, I mean. I, 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 a girl. Well, she was probably 19. There was a young woman who uh, had just come back from being in Europe and being a real cinephile, going to the Cinémathèque Française and uh, being aware of uh, Cahiers and really taught me what the auteur theory is. And she took me, I remember, to a double bill of Shock Corridor and Phoenix City Story. And everything was different after that. I mean, it took me a long time, actually, to get back to Fellini and, and Bergman, who I do revere in many ways. But at that moment, I went, throw them out. You know, uh, This is the most exciting thing I've ever seen. And she really fostered in me this habit of seeing three movies a day whenever I could, which I, you know, which also sometimes included something on television. But I, I think most of my undergraduate years, I, I watched you know, about three movies a day. And, um, you know, it was, it, it was voracious. And, and as I said last night in my acceptance speech, my friends and family were rather worried 
And that's partly why I went into film studies, uh, as I say, more as a kind of excuse for what I was doing than, than that I actually knew what I was going to do with a career or program of study. Uh, well, let's talk about that uh, program of study as you mm -hmm. entered graduate school at NYU. Um, what forces, positive or negative, uh, attracted you to the path that you took? The path that I took? I'm not sure I know. Well, no, I, I understand the question, but I'm just suddenly thinking I won't get hung up on what path I took. But uh, because I meandered, you know, I mean, I, it, it isn't as though there was a, you know, a vision, a, you know, a, a guiding light that was other than the projector beam, maybe. Um, going to NYU, though, I mean, that, you know, that did suddenly change things. Um, because, and I guess I would say the, the biggest immediate influence, you know, that really was one of these points where I went, ooh, maybe I don't understand what I thought I understood, was taking courses with Annette Michelson. Partly because um, her, she had almost no interest in classical American cinema, which for the last few years had been my passion. I'd always been interested in from Zvenagora um, and watching Potemkin on television when I think I was 13 uh, on the you know uh, public television station uh, in the silent film and and in Griffith um, I had seen uh, Intolerance um, and Birth of a Nation the Birth of a Nation um, probably when I was 13 on a trip to New York and um, so, so I had some idea that there was something other than just classical Hollywood. Um, but she made me aware of a whole modernist sensibility, which to a large extent had always been very important to me in painting and literature, but which I had not really thought of in relation to film. And uh, that was, you know, one of those moments where you kind of worry that everything you've thought you knew is going to dissolve but then you begin to uh, kind of broaden your whole horizon and put things into into place. So that was a major thing. I mean, uh, I think the first course I took with her was on uh, Soviet film, and uh, and it was you know a kind of revelation, uh, even though I had seen a number of the films. But just her whole sense of uh, its relation to constructivism and to politics and so on were things that I had not thought about. Uh, and then, of course, her opening up, although this was a little later for me, uh, the American avant-garde. I think the very first class I did take with her, probably, I think I took two courses with her the first semester, and one was on Soviet film, but the other one was kind of on modernism or, or something, and she showed wavelength. And I remember just thinking, what? Bullshit. You know, uh, just almost trying to stare the film down in fury, you know, and... Uh, it's funny because to leap forward, you know, I changed my mind later on in one of my favorite stories. Um, and I suddenly realized that like the next year that I really had not understood wavelength. And I had a projector. I had a 16 millimeter projector, which a lot of cinephiles did at that era and would watch films at home. And I had borrowed the print from NYU of, of wavelength. And I, uh, I was living with my, my first wife and, there was a little area where I could project films, and I told her, I, you know, I want to watch this 
this film. She she was a painter, an um, abstract expressions painter, uh, in a way. And I said, but it's a film I really hated when I first saw it, and I realized I haven't understood it, and I really need to concentrate on it. So you're welcome to watch it, but it's it's very boring, I think. And you know, if you don't like it, just leave. You know, but I, I you know I won't pay any attention to you, kind of you know being obnoxious. And after about. 20 minutes into Wavelength, I realized that my wife, Clarabelle Cohn, was her name, is her name, um, had stood up. And I thought, oh, she's she's leaving, but she's trying to leave slowly, and it's actually more distracting. You know, so after about three minutes of her standing there, I turned around and said, look, if you don't like it, just leave. I'm trying to concentrate. She said, no, it's just such a strong film that I can't watch it sitting down. You know, I've realized, wow, she gets it. You know, uh, what am I missing? But I have to admit, by the end of that screening, I had I had seen something. So that was those were major um, shifts uh, there towards um, the kind of sense that film could be involved with with the kind of modern project uh, that that I had already had some sense of in in as I say in literature and painting, um, but not really in film. And uh, and then a lot of my thinking after that, and I would have to admit to this very day, is kind of the interest in balancing those two things, you know, the the avant-garde film and, and, and the, the commercial film. And one of the things that I really find so exciting about film studies is I don't, I mean, certainly people who do art history can deal with salon painting and abstract painting, but there's a kind of different way that we can do both that I think is not contradictory. I think it's really the sign that it's still a vital medium, that it has both these, um, um, well, that it has this gamut. Uh, and, and trying to understand, I mean, the first thing is you have to understand they're different. And, you know, you're not, you, you know, when I was watching Wavelength and waiting for it to become an interesting film, you know, my idea of what was interesting was so limited by the idea of the classical paradigm. Uh, so one has to understand they're different, but to try to think that somehow these exist in the same medium, in the same period of history, I mean, you know, which is not true, say, with art history. You might do Vermeer in and Cezanne, but you're dealing with a historical difference, um, is, is still, to me, a great challenge. And one which I think is really exciting. It's maybe one of the things that I most always feel I want to convey to my students, that they can love Wavelength and the Searchers both, you know. There's also a balance in your work between uh, the avant-garde and the silent era. Mm -hmm. uh, and tell us a little bit about your love for your introduction to that mm -hmm. through Jay Lida and Noel Birch and mm -hmm. the rest. Yeah. Well, as I say, I actually had an interest in silent film from childhood. Um, in my recent book on color, my picture book, uh, I tell the story about that one of my first introductions to film, and certainly film qua film rather than just watching something, and it was very early, I mean, I think it was before I began to read, it was a book that my parents had. Um, from the 30s it was put together by Paul Rotha who of course is a famous British film historian but it's it's an odd book it's it's a book it was called movie parade and it's almost all pictures uh, stills you know um, not large format but you know maybe four or five a page almost no text and so as a little kid I would pick it up and look at it you know because it was a picture book and 
get very fascinated wondering what are these movies, you know, because I knew they were from movies. And as I, I say in the introduction I'm to, to the new book, The Color Book, which in some way aspires to be a similar book, I, am, I remember I had a nightmare about Cabin and Dr. Caligari when I was about six, without even knowing what the, the film was. You know, having never seen it, probably not even knowing the name, but from this picture of Cesare in, in his coffin with uh, Caligari leaning over him that was in um, Movie Parade. Um, so anyway, so I was fascinated. Partly, you know, I remember there was an image uh, in Movie Parade from the New York Cat, the Griffith biograph, and of Mary Pickford. And I remember my mother saying that she had seen the film and it was very interesting and always wanting be curious to see it. So that there was this, you know, this was one of the things. When I would go to New York, I would seek out silent films. So this was certainly not part of an academic thing. I mean, it, it got transformed by the academic. And I really don't know that I could tell you why it appealed to me. Uh, I think there are a lot of kids who respond to silent film. Later on, kind of maybe lose it because it's not uh, but but I remember uh, you know various people telling me about showing silent films to their kids. Obviously things like Chaplin, but but also you know um, thrillers and serials and so on, and, and kids getting very absorbed into it. So I, I don't want to do the kind of essentialist what's like the dream world, although I think it's probably right. But um, uh, so then obviously coming to NYU, uh, Michelson's course in Soviet cinema was a real revelation. The availability of silent film at the Museum of Modern Art and uh, at other venues um, made this all uh, possible to, to really absorb. I've often thought, because I am in some ways a kind of Freudian, that there was some aspect of primal scene fantasies. You know, if I knew about silent film, I would know how everything began you know, particularly if I knew about the very earliest films and, you know, that this was, was, was part of it. Um, so then, uh, then, as you say, of course, having, it wasn't until after I'd been at NYU for quite a while that Jay Lida came, um, but, uh, you know, it was towards the end of my class, uh, coursework, uh, but, you know, he became my um, advisor and, of course, um, not only did he give this extraordinary seminar on Griffith's biograph films, which, you know, inspired my dissertation, uh, but he was, as, as I said last night in my talk, um, he was film history. You know, I mean, you know, this is a man who, <laughs> I remember we, they rediscovered a print of the film that he made in the early thirties, um, uh, Bronx morning, uh, uh, he had thought it was lost, but they found it at the Museum of Modern Art. I wasn't actually at the screening. Uh, um, uh, Elena Pinto, who is our uh, administrator and who was very close to Jay, uh, told me the story. Then when they had a screening at the Museum of Modern Art, she said to him, well, when was the last time you saw this? And he said, oh, well, it was in Moscow, you know, when I, when I first arrived. And she said, and who else was in the room? And went, Oh, Sergei Eisenstein, Dziga Vertov, um, Podovkin, and I think Devchenko. Yeah, I mean, you just, wow. Uh, and um, so, you know, he, he was an enormous inspiration on, uh, on all those levels. Uh, T, 
tell us about your first full-time teaching position after, I know that you were teaching while you were a graduate student, but was there a moment when you got your first full-time position and I think was, was it a purchase that you, that was no, by no means. Uh, well, of course, I mean, it's, it's, it's a hard thing and full-time, I understand why you're asking that question, but it actually for, you know, knowing that the few people who might actually listen to this would probably be graduate students. We begin teaching part-time as teaching assistants, which of course I did at NYU, and then I got a part-time job teaching at Brooklyn College. Um, And I'm terrible at dates, I have to admit, I probably should have brought my resume to give you the exact date on that, Um, but in the 70s. And um, that then became uh, a full-time position at Brooklyn College, and I taught at Brooklyn College for um, several years, and that was very, um, very important. Uh, I actually still have very close friends who were my students then. I mean, it's 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 interesting, uh, and that was a time when Brooklyn College had open admissions. I actually had students in some classes who could not read. I don't mean couldn't read well. I mean they. You, I had to do oral exams with them, I was told. Um, I don't think that was, I mean, I think they're being betrayed because, you know, you could get into Brooklyn College if you had a uh, New York um, uh, City uh, high school diploma and they would just pass people, you know. Um, so they were betrayed, but in some ways it was fascinating uh, for me to have that, you know, very, so I learned to teach with with very often intelligent and world-wise uh, students, but often with very little um, academic training. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I had some brilliant students who, who went on and got PhDs and, and, and so on. So um, uh, it was the full gamut. Uh, and that was uh, that was exciting. I had classes of, um, you know, I did, a, I think maybe even the first, certainly one of the first um, uh, academic uh, university courses on Hitchcock. And I had, I think, 300 students, including, as I say, the, uh, the people I had to do oral exams with, who understood Hitchcock pretty well. Um, so that was my first full-time teaching. Uh, is there anything in particular I should say about it, other than that it was, it was very exciting. I taught the American avant-garde. I taught um, Hitchcock. I taught uh, gangster films. I taught comedy. I taught the full gamut. Yeah. Well, this is a moment when uh, film studies is being institutionalized in the academic environment. Uh, so you were pretty much given free reign to teach whatever you wanted and how you wanted to teach it. Um, if I was, it probably wasn't because of that. It's probably because my chairman wasn't paying any attention. Yeah. <laughs> no, we'll keep that in. I didn't say his name. Uh, although actually at points you go, I, I don't think you should show that film. Why don't you show this one? Uh, but, um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah I, I mean, no, I was given some assignments, but, but basically, uh, but you know, there were still academic constraints. I remember at one point I, uh, was going to teach a course on the avant-garde, and I think, and I'm not even sure I made up the title, but it was called something like Avant-Garde Experimental and Underground Film, and there was a university committee that objected to it because the claim was that underground indicated tacit support for the Palestinian Liberation Organization, and I was 
kind of like, <laughs> I don't get it. You know? <laughs> and in fact, it was kind of handy that I pointed out that uh, the first term, I mean, very first time that had appeared in print underground film was uh, by Manny Farber, you know, uh, in, uh, uh, you know, um, magazine that was uh, sponsored by the uh, uh, you know American Jewish Association or something like that but uh, anyway so um, during the early period of your career at this moment in the 70s were there any particular issues in the field that were especially important in shaping the direction of your research and teaching or for the development of the field in general I know one of the things you've always talk to me about is that you see the your part in the field is part of a part of a larger conversation that uh, that publications are in some way a, uh, a part of a larger discussion about certain issues what were the issues that were shaping you at this moment when you were just starting to teach and starting to publish and working on your dissertation okay a couple things I mean one thing which I think doesn't get commented on partly because in, in some ways it uh, there are a lot of people who aren't interested in it anymore but in other ways also because it's just kind of commonly accepted what Annette Michelson really introduced me to was close reading you know uh, the critics who I liked at that point writing about Hitchcock and so on like Robin Wood were very were often very close readers but they didn't necessarily do a shot count or a shot-by-shot -shot analysis. Uh, and a lot of what they talked about was more thematic and character-driven and things like that. So the idea of actually taking a film apart visually, um, which I always think partly is, you know, that I, I was lucky to have Annette as a first mentor because I kind of came into cinema, whereas I think many people come in through literature, and I, I you know, I was immersed in literature, but I came in more through an art historian. So it was more oriented towards image and figuring out how images worked. Um, so that was, in a large sense, the most important foundation for me uh, in terms of um, 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 my early studies at NYU. Also, in that sense of, of modernism uh, was extremely important, and particularly in, in thinking about uh, the avant-garde. And I was very interested in thinking about modernism in relation to romanticism which was not so much her focus. I mean, she would have acknowledged it, uh, but uh, that was part of what I was already immersed in. And I was really interested in tracing, you know, things like Kandinsky back to German romanticism and things like that. And then when Pieta Sidney came to NYU a few years after my beginning, this, of course, was, you know, it's just uh, wonderful for me to uh, meet someone who could so perfectly explain this to me this connection that I intuited. Um, but then what was curious, and I mentioned this last night in my talk, is that the discourse in the field broadly, not necessarily centered at NYU at all, but uh, more broadly, began to be partly filtered with the new French and then filtered through screen British uh, film. Um, you know, what I at that point, I never used the term apparatus theory. I don't know that anyone used it. You know, I mean, it's in Baudry, but uh, but it's, it's, it is a handy term. Uh, and as I mentioned, I was both intrigued by that and repelled by it, uh, particularly by its um, uh, denigration of, uh, of film viewing. As I, I found it a really 
important thing to suddenly think about film viewing, which I was immersed in critically, and to to worry about it. Uh, but it also seemed to me, as as I've often said, really bad faith, because there are all these people dancing it, and they were obviously totally driven to look at, you know, if, if they had hated films and not watched films, at least that would have been more honest, I felt. So I was felt there was an enormous kind of almost literal hypocrisy. But at the same time, there was something at the core that was really interesting there. Uh, but to some extent, moving into early cinema was trying to think, okay, you know, what I think they're really talking about is something that has to do with narrative film. Stephen Heath was, I think, the only person who was really kind of explicit about this. Uh, that, that, you know, and I was thinking, but, you know, I'm not sure everything that's at issue, this is something more that I developed later, you know, is, is about narrative here. So, Just as an aside, yeah. talking about close reading and taking part mm-hmm. of the image, uh, was an analytic projector an important part of this? I'm so glad you said that because it was almost, I would say, essential uh, for the teaching, although to a large extent, and NYU had analytical projectors, and, and I think we had one, in fact, and there would be a fight about who got it, you know. And obviously, if we're TAs, we'd fight on equal grounds. If if it was competing with Annette, she got it, you know. Uh, not everybody used it, but, you know, Annette did, Bill Simon did, you know, um, and almost all the TAs. Uh, so this was important. But equally, just uh, uh, NYU got um, um, oh, damn, Steenbeck's. And uh, a lot of our analysis was actually on the Steenbeck, which, of course, is much easier on the film itself. Um, I mean, the analytical projectors were tearing the sprocket holes like crazy and, um, you know, uh, stuff like that. So it was, it was, they were rough on films. Uh, but yes, that... You know, Raymond Ballour in what's it called? The the unseizable I can't remember the translation, the cinema, the unseizable text. It's not that's not the right translation, but you know, uh, makes his point how you know that we can't stop a film. We could. And that changed everything. Uh, and you know, we did worry a little bit about does it distort, you know, because this isn't how we experience it. But in a certain way I think everybody began to realize the critical process is different from film viewing and although it probably needs to maintain a, a um, awareness of film viewing it doesn't have to replicate it uh, tell us about the FIOF symposium it was 1978 mm-hmm. uh, how did you become involved in that I know that uh, you and Charles Musser were there as graduate students but uh, how did that happen yeah well um it happened primarily through one of the most important relations in my career, which is with Eileen Bowser, who was the curator at the Museum of Modern Art, and an extraordinary, extraordinary person um, on every level, as a curator, as a figure, you know, to, a, a wonderful person to interact with. Uh, in 74, I'd have to look at the date, uh, the, the Museum of Modern Art had a retrospective on, on D.W. Griffith, and Ron Mottram uh, was uh, one of the people who was selected to be involved with it, but he knew that I was, I'd already at that point decided I was going to work in the biograph films and uh, begun doing research. So he got me involved. We were kind of 
co-curators with Eileen Bowser and Eileen and I formed a strong relationship and um, you know um, she got very interested in what was happening in film studies and um, you know I was very interested in archives and their um, policies and you know just being able to actually look at films there was a certain way that in the era of grand theory some people say, I, you know, I don't need to look at films. You know, I've, I've got my ideas. You know, maybe here and there a film slips in, um, you know, to exemplify something. Uh, so then when Fiaf decided a couple years after that that they wanted to do this project on looking at films from 1900 to 1906, basically going through all their archives and pulling them out and looking at them again, uh, she got uh, me involved as the uh, American coordinator. And we had a series of screenings with Paul Spear from uh, Library of Congress and a group of people, Andre came down from Montreal, that's when I first kind of met him, um, other people, David Levy, um, uh, you know, uh, um, Charlie uh, Musser, uh, you know, we watched everything the Library of Congress and the Museum of Art had from that period, 1900-1906, and we selected stuff that would be shown at, at Brighton. And so the, the, the decision was that this was all in preparation for a FIOF conference in Brighton, England, which of course was the center of early filmmaking in England. Uh, in 1978, there would be a week of uh, screenings and then uh, uh, a couple of days of presentations. And um, uh, so that's, yeah, I mean, I guess that's, and, and its mission was exactly to look at these early films with uh, new eyes. And, um, uh, and Charlie, uh, Musser, Andre, myself, uh, some other people, some of whom were not, Continued with, you know, with John Hagen, um, John Gartenberg, um, God, I can't remember all of us, you know, uh, uh, watched these films and a number of us went to Brighton and, uh, and then there were more screenings from international archives and with people like including Noel Birch and, um, oh God, uh, you know, people from all over the world, archivists and scholars. Uh, and, um, and then finally, you know, we gave our, our presentations and yeah, I mean, it slightly, how would I put it? amuses me that there is this kind of apocal moment given to, to Brighton and that people like uh, Paula Kirkegaard, I always, uh, who I think wasn't there, you know, uh, kind of go, oh, I wish I could have been there. But it was important. But I don't think anybody thought, oh, you know, in what, what year is this? 2015, we're going to be, you know, still talking, not still reminiscing, we knew it would be an important, but seeing, you know, that, that students who weren't there will refer to it, which, which uh, happens. Um, the key thing, though, about it was exactly this thing, and it's so obvious that its revolutionary nature is easy to forget, to look at these films. Most people, many film scholars did not bother to look at films. I mean, for instance, you know, there was a book on Griffith the Biograph written before my dissertation by a man named Robert Henderson. At that point, at least 400 of the Biograph films were available at either the Museum of Modern Art or Library of Congress. I found his notes, he looked at 60 of them, you know, and didn't think that was a problem. You know, and I'm not saying because he was a lazy guy, I'm saying that was the state of the field at that point. 
And so, uh, you know, and most of film history, what people did was they looked in other film histories and said, okay, Griffith first cut in this film. They never went to see it, to see he didn't cut, you know, or whatever, you know. Uh, so um, the, the main impulse behind Brighton was to look at these films, take them off the shelf in the archive, and have people look at them. And not just, uh, yeah, okay, the, you know, the print's okay, it doesn't have decay, you know, but actually try to think what, what, what they mean. Yeah. Around this time, uh, you're meeting a number of colleagues, such as Andre, for the first time, mm -hmm. uh, and starting to collaborate. Tell us about this albatross, the Cinema of Attractions essay, mm -hmm. and the context from which it, it developed. Yeah. Uh, and after that, tell us how you would situate it now. Mm -hmm. Well, um, Andre, as I say, I met through Fiat. Um, he's a little, you know, a couple years younger than me, probably very enthusiastic. We were both graduate students. Uh, and, um, he very much wanted to systematize a lot of the things that happened at, at Brighton. So he, um, worked on a filmography of everything that we saw and trying to gather up everybody's notes. A lot of people had, um, tape recorders that they spoke into. I have to admit, I didn't, you know, you tried to gather those together and he put them together and it came out as a second volume of the proceedings. Um, and then, you know, uh, and you know, he's such a charming and terrific guy. We, we got along very well and we were both very interested in narrative analysis and, uh, certain kinds of, um, you know, semiotic concepts of narrative, I guess I would say, you know, and so we had a project to kind of figure out the beginnings of narrative in um, early film, you know, editing figures and things like that. And uh, we met several times a year uh, in Montreal or, or New York at that time. To discuss this, we began to put together other filmographies um, he always had money for graduate students to be researchers. Uh, and, um, and we had long discussions. I mean, I remember at one point having this discussion about a, what a syntagm was and, and he had a, wherever we were, I don't even think it was his apartment. There was like a photograph of a, like a parade. And I was saying, now is that a syntagm? Cause there are people in a line, you know? So we were, you know, drunk on this. Uh, and then, um, uh, he was going to do a thing at Sarah C uh, on Melies, I think. I'm, I'm not sure I've got this cor correct uh, exactly. Uh, but um, it was something that we were going to collaborate on, but I knew I couldn't come to it. And I was teaching at Harvard at this point, just as a visiting lecture. And he came down. I had a very brilliant um, uh, TA, a man named Adam Simon, uh, who um, now is a scriptwriter for horror films in Hollywood. Uh, and um, I had been working, Adam was very interested in horror films, and we'd been working out certain ideas, and I was interested, you know, in the idea of an attraction, which I took partly from Eisenstein, you know, the idea that there are these kind of units of, of galvanizing the audience's attention, which he called attraction, partly because he wanted to avoid the bourgeois idea of identification. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, thinking of his plays particularly as building blocks of these, these, these moments of that would galvanize the attention of an audience and that he related not to, you know, bourgeois theater, but to the fairground. 
and particularly, uh, you know, to the roller coaster was his prime idea of an attraction. And of course, this is fairground talk. You know, uh, I, I found this even more, you know, than I knew at the time that I used it kind of somewhat intuitively, that it was so much part of the vocabulary of, of the showman, you know, that you do attractions. Um, so Adam and I had kind of worked out this and Andre, now Andre says he doesn't remember this, so take it for what it's worth, I guess. But Andre, uh, I think Charlie Musser had first used the term early cinema trying to get away from primitive cinema. And uh, we'd used it, and Andre said, you know, the French term cinema de premier temps is kind of awkward. So I wish there was something as simple as early cinema. And I said, well, you know, I've got this phrase that Adam and I have been using, cinema of attractions. And it translated to French and went, oh, this is good. And then when he, he particularly then looked at Jacques Aumont's treatment of attractions in Eisenstein, and integrated it into the first uh, presentation of, of the idea, which we kind of co-authored, but he particularly um, brought in the stuff from Aumont. You know, although I had said, you know, this is Eisenstein, but I hadn't, I think at that point, read Aumont, which was still just in French. Um, so that's, to some extent, um, at least my memory uh, of, the, of the origin of the term. Um, as I say, you know, even though their points were, you know, I, last night I, you may remember Don Crafton said he invented the term cinema of attractions, but we won't hold that against him. Um, you know, there are points where, where, well, no, I don't regret it at all. There are points where I go, okay, let, there are other things we can talk about. Uh, but I still actually find it a very useful term. I've always tried to emphasize that it's dialectical. You know, that, that it is like a, a cinema is either simply narrative or simply, I don't like the, the adjective term attractional, which Andre uses, but an, an attraction. Um, but it is the interaction. I mean, they can be separate, totally, you know. Uh, I mean, I have to admit, I've watched some narrative films that had no attractions whatsoever. Uh, and there are, um, you know, certain types of films that I think do not develop a narrative at all. Uh, but it's also the way that they can be interrelated that is, to me, what makes it really a useful term. website you will find a link to the full field notes interview with gunning uh, he talk, discusses the beginnings of Delmator, the organization of film and media studies departments and offers thoughts on the future of the field uh, we'll also have a link on our website to gunning's acceptance speech at scms which he references a bit yeah and that was a fun listen especially i mean the whole thing is great uh and really fascinating insight on cinema of attractions but there was one little bit that i really found compelling where he talked about these childhood experiences, these lingering memories, for instance, of, of having a nightmare about uh, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And it just made me think I would love to hear from other film and TV scholars about those kind of childhood experiences w with film and television. So that's a good Vox Galari idea. Yeah. We might follow up on that. Yeah, we may indeed. You know, two of my earliest uh, media memories are terror at uh, watching the wizard of oz and you know by the time the flying monkeys come out it's oh. you know i'm behind the couch and then yeah you know that was bad but the other really kind of striking but in a very very uh, different dull sort of way um is that i think my earliest memory of 
live television was the Watergate hearings. Really? And all, all I remember is just gray. I mean, it was, you know, an old black and white TV. And um, it was just like... Everything about it was gray, right? I mean, it was it was like um, obviously the image was was gray, but the tone was gray, mm. and the um, and the sound was gray. Everything was just like this muffled, monotonous, ponderous thing that was going on on TV. That was so. Um, I mean, you know, I, I just remember my mom watching it really closely and being mm. really concerned about it and being interested in it. But it, it just it, it didn't work for me. It just was like this like harbinger <laughs> of the doom of adulthood or something. Yeah. That's what was waiting. That sounds like it's had a big impact on you. <laughs> well, I, I remembered it anyway. <laughs> well, I always remember a family vacation where we were staying in a hotel and my parents got in a huge fight and, and stormed out of the hotel room, leaving me and my brother there. And I would have been single digits, eight or nine. And then my brother's four years older. And so they left us in this hotel room, right? And a hotel room then has like HBO and whatever premium channels. And so my brother, <laughs> being a big brother, put on, I think it was like American Werewolf in London mm-hmm. or Wolfen or something, like a horror movie. And this was the hor- first horror movie I'd seen. And I, I still vividly remember like these horrific shots of like graphic bodies being torn open. <laughs> Maybe not the best brothering by my brother. Oh, well, you know, it was a yeah, stressful and it, and time. It's against the landscape of, uh, <laughs> or against the, the backdrop of this. You know, you witnessing your parents. Yeah, home. exactly. Yeah. So, so childhood trauma seen through horror movies. That's actually that works. good stuff there. All right. So yeah, we'll follow up. Maybe at SCMS. Maybe that would be a good Vox Galari yeah. question at SCMS. We can come at you with our uh, our recorders. And actually, speaking of upcoming content, we wanted to tease something. There is an upcoming exciting event in February. This is the conference of the Radio Preservation Task Force, and it will be held in Washington, D.C. on February 26th and 27th. So the Radio Preservation Task Force has been working with the Library of Congress and scores of volunteers all over the country. They've been working for a couple of years now to identify and preserve radio recordings and archival collections hidden away and lost to scholars. And they are finding these collections in big research libraries, in small local historical societies all over the place. So this is a really exciting project. Um, This conference in D.C. then will bring together radio scholars and archivists, including our very own Bill Kirkpatrick. Mm -hmm. He's going to be there. And they'll all be talking about what they're finding and the problem of preserving radio generally. So we're going to have full coverage of this conference in our next episode, thanks to Bill. Um, If you want to learn more about the conference ahead of it or maybe even attend the conference, you can go to radiopreservation.org. And we'll also have the link up on our website under the show notes for this episode at aca-media.org. Check that out. That should be that should be a great event. Yep, and if you can't make it, you get to hear about it yes, in our next episode. All right, we're two months out from the cruelest month, and fortunately, this is the shortest month of uh, chilly weather. Yeah. So nose to the grindstone, head down, just power through it. Yep, that's the way it goes. Acamedia is produced with the support of Isla at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the Durf Fund at Denison University. And we would like to thank the Field Notes team, headed up by Heidi Wasson, with assistance from Patrice Petro, Barb Klinger, Matthew Oganowski, and others. And thanks to Scott Curtis and Tom Gunning. Uh, thanks also to the Film Matters team of Tim Palmer, Liza Palmer, Greg Chan, Kaylin Walpole, and Jin Pantow for talking to us. Yeah, and go check them out. Yeah. You can find the links at our website. And thanks, as always, to Bill Kirkpatrick of Denison University. And to Todd Thompson down in Texas, who makes it all sound good. And thanks so much to the newest members of our team. So that would be Joel Neville Anderson at the University of Rochester and Stephanie Brown at University of Illinois. Couldn't do it without their help. Definitely. Happy Februarying. Thank <laughs> you.